welcome to the Edward Hutchinson podcast. Uh, I think this is about our 10th episode now, actually losing track, which is kind of crazy. But we are honoured today to actually be joined by um, a really good connection, actually, that we actually got connected probably a year and a half, two years ago, maybe? Probably, yeah? about two years ago. Yes. And it was through Instagram, I it think, was. at the time. Yeah. The source of all great connections. It is actually now. Like I'm realising it because I'm getting more and more of that. But we are joined today uh, by George Jordan, who is uh, one of the brains and people behind A&R Signature Collection. What is your official title, George? I'm the Chief Financial Officer and, CFO. and one of the principals. And one of the and principals. Augustine Rodriguez is the, the president and the other principal. Who's your husband? He is. Okay, so yeah. that's... That's actually was something that I think I want to ask you about later because my wife the other day turned around to me and she was like, oh, you know, I think I'd be quite good at selling real estate. And, you know, skating. <laughs> I'm like, gee, she could, well, I kind of would be, but I don't know how our relationship would battle through that. It you just have be. to work for a different agency. Yeah, exactly. That will be competitive and just fight against each other. <laughs> um, so George is principal and CFO of uh, A&R Signature. And A&R have been building some pretty incredible homes, a lot of which actually we've toured on LA Mansion tours over the last couple of years. Uh, and your kind of main areas are the kind of expensive areas of, of LA. Um, right, we primarily build in the, I, I always refer to it as the Sunset Corridor because it run all the, a lot of the neighborhoods that run along Sunset Boulevard from uh, Pacific Palisades yeah. to Los Feliz, including Brentwood, Bel Air, Hollywood Hills, Beverly Hills, um, and, then, and then going off Sunset, Sunset to go to Hancock Park. Um, but, but all of the the premier neighborhoods in Los Angeles. So it's almost like it's the view property. Almost you're in that kind of area where it's the base of the mountain kind of thing and you're getting the views properties generally, but actually you do a couple of others as well. Right. I mean, I think a lot of the neighborhoods that we build in um, have the potential for view properties. Yeah. You know, but like Brentwood, a majority of properties in Brentwood are not view properties, no. but it's still a very, very desirable neighborhood and some of our most successful uh, projects have been there. Uh, in the Hollywood Hills, certainly views are, are very important for yeah. most people who are buying in the Hollywood Hills. It does seem like that, and I especially see like over the last couple of years, it's like you just need the, as much glass as possible on that side to make the best of the view. That, that's true. I, I mean, I think when, depending on the type of home that you're building, there's yeah. always this balance of trying to take advantage of the views and at the same time um, trying to provide privacy to the home, and often those two... Uh, work against each other because if you can see out it means people can see in so that's something that we very much take into consideration when Definitely. we are both selecting the homes that we buy and um, and designing uh, the homes uh, as we go along yeah because that's exactly that's so true isn't it because i suppose all of the buyers who are in that price point who are kind of successful individuals privacy is a very important thing to them yeah i don't i, I think people recognize that uh, there's going to be some exposure, yeah. and it might be on a distant hillside, but somebody who's spending $10 million or more on a home yeah. doesn't want their neighbor looking into their window. Unless, actually, you live on the Strand in Manhattan Beach. Well, yeah, that's you're, you're right. <laughs> do you get that? Like, do you understand uh, the no, price point I, there? I, I don't get that at all, but that's a different lifestyle. Right? It is, you can literally hand somebody your beer up. On the other side of the boardwalk, and you pay $12 million for your home. Yeah, and then you've got heads just moving along in front of your living room. I'm just <laughs> kind of like, okay. But that is, it's crazy, because every person I speak to who lives in Manhattan Beach completely understands that. And they're like, yeah, of course I'd buy that for 12 mil or whatever it is. And then every other person's like, yeah, I've walked down there. I'm kind of, 
your neighbors are like right here next to you. <laughs> right. <laughs> There's not a huge amount of like space and, and view for that, but I suppose it's the same with Venice and that kind of, it's not quite the same price point, but still. Right, probably, yeah. Yeah. And, and they're not right on the, the water. We actually had looked at a property in Playa del Rey and, and were considering it because it was all in the sand and the, uh, the Bologna bike path was yeah. right there and there was nobody, but Playa del Rey hasn't experienced the, um, the success that Manhattan Beach and Hermosa Beach have, I think only because there's the single access into it. So pe people want the access to nightlife that they have um, in Hermosa and Manhattan Beach. Definitely. It's almost like they like separate beach communities, even though they're kind of very close to LA, like as a bigger... Right. Um, and that's the weird thing that I actually find, because well, actually I spend a lot of our clients at the moment who are saying, hey, I want to be close to the ocean and I want to buy in, a, in an area that I think is going to go up in value. Playa del Rey is almost my number one pick right now, because I feel like it's been suppressed for such a long time. And there's a lot of 80s style condos in that kind of area. I definitely think that Playa del Rey is undervalued. Yeah. And, you know, you have the proximity to the airport, but you can get in to an, an oceanfront property for half the price that it would cost you to be in Manhattan or Hermosa Beach. Yeah, and then also you've got the whole new movement of the Silicon Beach kind of thing coming in with Playa Vista behind it, and then you've got a huge amount of actually very highly paid individuals who are moving to this area for the tech industry. So I kind of think that those pockets, will, it'll be. I hope that it's almost like a Venice of, you know, like seven, eight years ago, where it, people were like, oh, it's a little bit, you know, dangerous and weird. And then as soon as Santa Monica kind of hit a point, they were like, hold on a second, there's some quite character to this, and I quite like it. It kind of just, boom. Right. There's a very small number of oceanfront homes in Playa. And yeah. They, they change hands very infrequently, and so there hasn't been really any significant development um, in there. So it'll be interesting to see if the first people who um, go to it are rewarded. Uh, you know, how of course, the, co the Coastal Commission process doesn't make it easier. That's <laughs> so true. Yeah, because yeah, I suppose they're going to restrict you there, even though, yeah, you kind of think, oh, well, it's not as if you're blocking as much views because you kind of got that higher area above, but it's Coastal Commission, so they just say no. I think it's just the, the time requirements. You just have to be patient if you're going to build oceanfront property. Yeah. And I, I know that's one of the issues that we deal with with our investors because time is money. And so... You know, they don't want to get involved in a project that is potentially going to take 18 months to two years just to get your approvals to start construction. Yeah, okay. So actually, is that kind of what pushes you in the luxury markets of LA more towards the Beverly Hills, Bel Air, Hancock Park, that kind of area, as opposed to being in that Coastal Commission zone, which is just going to cause a lot more headaches and also have your investors kind of thinking... Well, I, I would say it's a couple things. First of, first of all, certainly the discretionary approvals of the Coastal Commission is something that none of our investors, nor are we comfortable with. I yeah. mean, we like to understand what we have the ability by right yeah. to get built. And so with most sellers of properties, you have to remove your contingencies and, and go firm or even close escrow without knowing what that's going to be if you're in a Coastal Commission property or... Another area that I think has has seen some challenges recently has been properties that are located within the Mulholland Scenic Corridor because yeah. they, they require a discretionary approval. And, you know, those now, which used to be <clears throat> maybe seven to nine months, are taking upwards of, uh, of a year. And so, uh, and, and, and most of that is due to understaffing within the city. 
Um, so it's one thing if you're actually going through an active process and it takes yeah. that long. It's another thing if your paperwork is just sitting waiting to be reviewed by somebody and in the meantime you're, you know, you're, you're paying for the holding costs all the way along and not being able to... Just sitting there twiddling your thumbs and kind of waiting. Yeah, so I would say, you know, as a result of that, uh, we typically will pursue properties where we have a better understanding of what we can do by right and there's no impediments to getting our entitlements. Yeah, and that is like... Because I actually think about... Because actually, I, I think that we've talked about this before, but I would love to start developing luxury property in the future of my career at some stage. Yeah. And so it kind of like, I always think about that, of like how many headaches, I suppose, and actually we talked about this just before we started the podcast, I suppose it is just experience really, isn't it? It's going through those, okay, we tried to do this on this property, this was what came up, so the next one we're not going to try it that way, we're going to try something else. And I suppose there's, you can't really get that value in any other way than just doing it or working with Right. I think every time we evaluate a new opportunity, uh, we are bringing to the table our experience of the 50 luxury homes that yeah. that we've developed and all of the lessons that we've learned from those. Yeah. And um, one of the consequences of that is we end up avoiding uh, uh, properties that have potential pitfalls that are similar to ones that we've done in the past yeah and, and it may be steep hillsides behind the home that could result in significant drainage issues it might be you know proximity to noisy streets it could be the lack of parking and the inability to to get sufficient parking any one of a uh, of a number of things yeah. and so i think we've gotten to the point where as much as we we want to fall in love with some properties we don't fall in love with them to the point where you know, we will make foolish decisions. That's a really good one because I think that there, people listening right now will have seen me go on LA Mansion tours and actually probably seen some of the properties that you do. And there's certain ones that I'll walk into and I'm like, oh, this is gorgeous. Obviously, I'm just seeing it for half an hour. <laughs> I've not built it. Have right. you ever had projects like that where you've literally, as it's been going up, you're like, this is the, this is incredible. And when it's sold, you've actually kind of felt like, oh, you miss it as opposed to being happy. Usually when we're, when they sell, we're related. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't we don't have separation anxiety with any of our uh, properties. I suppose uh, as you being the CFO as well, it's like, right, we've just underwritten that, the bottom line has been met and we did. And... I, I mean, I think there's the, there's the business aspect, but I think there's also the gratification that comes from um, just recognizing that a buyer out there uh, that your property resonated with somebody yeah. enough to make them pull the trigger because the, the reality is in the price points that we deal in, which are typically in the, the 5 to $20 million price range, nobody has to buy a home. Okay. And um, as you're probably aware, you know, there are people who are, that are constantly looking at homes. Yeah. And um, real estate is one of the biggest hobbies for moneyed people in Definitely. the city of Los Angeles. And when they find something that moves them, that's when uh, they will buy. So there is a gratification when you develop a property that ends up moving somebody to that point. So it's almost like an artist where they create a piece of art and when they sell that art, it's like someone, it's always that feeling of like, wow, I created something that's real like desirable as it were kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, I think you always have to keep in mind who you're likely buyers are yeah. i mean we do that when we're when we're going through the development process we are always talking about 
who is the most likely buyer and how do we design this home. So we're going to design a home differently in the Sunset Strip yeah. um, where your most likely buyer is going to be you know, a single person or couple yeah. than we would be in Brentwood or Pacific Palisades where it, it is highly likely that you may have a family and yeah. they're going to be more interested in flat, usable y- yard space rather than views and you know they want more bedrooms not a ridiculous master necessarily right yeah exactly that's really interesting because actually i think that's something you guys do really well because there is definitely i think a trend sometimes with some of the luxury developers and in la and across the world where they almost feel like that's their style and they just do it wherever it is in the in the city whereas i know that the projects that we've seen from yours they've always had that kind of a and r feel to them but it's there's such a variety in the different styles you're doing, from modern to something that actually is, you know, your kind of Mediterranean Spanish style and actually kind of bringing that to its best as opposed to just saying, right, this is what's popular right now, therefore I'm just going to build that style. Well, thank you, I mean, for recognizing that. And we make a very concerted effort to uh, make all of our homes feel warm and yeah. accessible, regardless of the scale. I mean, we're we're not participating in the ultra-luxury homes of you know, 25, 30, $50 million uh, properties. But we've built homes that are larger than 10,000 square feet. And yeah. even with homes of that scale, we're always trying to make them feel accessible so that when somebody's in the space, they don't feel like they're walking through a museum. They feel comfortable. They want to linger. And you know, I think both of us have gone into a lot of properties where that's not the case, where yes. you, know, you might walk in and ooh and ah about certain selections that somebody made, but at the end of the day, because there's stark uh, stark white flooring or there's yeah. a, a glass staircase, you, you don't want to hang out there. <laughs> no. And that, that's obviously, I always look at it because obviously I came from the London market, which is, like LA still got, you know, 100-year-old properties, but I look at the kind of London and I look over the last 100 years because it's almost a trend in London where we don't recreate old style. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you'd go and do a Mediterranean. You're building modern now, but no one is, like, really copying the old Victorian that kind of was there. Right. And what I look at it now, because I remember when I first started selling property, everyone hated the concrete 80s stuff because mm-hmm. there were certain areas of London that bombed in the 60s, 70s and 80s when we had enough money, they were kind of filled with these concrete, you know. And now I go back to London and a few of my friends are like, oh no, I want the concrete one. So it's almost like I feel styles have this weird thing where they get popular, then they almost have this kind of five years of like becoming slightly less popular, then for like 15, 20 years people are like, oh, that's disgusting. And then they come back again as almost like people like the recreating of an old character, but it takes a certain amount of time to kind of do that. Well, I think certainly uh, both architectural styles and design trends go through phases. And I think that um, everything sort of has a shelf life. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, I, I would use an ex- as an example today, sort of a mar- modern farmhouse. Yeah. Like we've done several, A&R has done several modern farmhouses. Several of, the, been, of them have been successful. Uh, we have one under construction now. But it, but we spoke in and discussed it and said, you know, I think, I think there, this has sort of been taken as far as it can go, okay. and it's time to move on to to something else. Yeah. Um, and then you'll see though that concept 
sort of trickling down to lower priced homes, which I see now in the you know the five million and then the four million and the three million, which is probably very well received at those price points. But I I think that we feel that we want to continuously innovate so push that the boundaries. We're, so well, so that we're bringing to market you know products that people haven't seen before yeah. or that feel fresh. Because that, that is definitely the thing, because I, I remember and literally every week when I'm looking up, like, what am I going to go and see on a Tuesday so I can capture some content for the, our followers and like what they're going to see, it's a huge amount of just glass boxes. Right. And especially at that kind of high price point. So it, it does become a, like a point where I'm like, the person that's going to spend that kind of money, they want something unique and they want this to be theirs. They don't just want to buy a copy of every other kind of glass box that's kind of gone up. Right, and I think that, you know, before we started, you were talking about the property on Bentley yeah. that sold. Yeah. Um, and I think that 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 issue with the glass boxes is one where when, when buyers are seeing those over and over and over again, they don't... If, I think one of the things that moves people to buy is when they feel like a sense of loss if they don't. Yeah. And when you're looking at so many of the homes on, you know, Thrasher or Oriole or Blue Jay, you know, for the most part, that there's going to be another one coming to market, you know, that's exactly the same as the other ones at any any time. And so when something really special like that property on Bentley, despite the fact that it was located in an area of... Bel Air that had never seen that type of you know pricing uh, before, but it is unique and the quality is there. People will respond to it. Yeah, and actually, because I was chatting to Caesar, who does your stonework right. for a lot of your projects, and he was doing that for that project and was saying that the owner of that, or the guy that built it, was his first project. Oh, really? First ever project, and apparently he was saying there were things like he was on the site and he was up on the roof, and they were doing the redoing the laying down of the waterproofing on the roof for the fifth time and he was like you do realize like one is kind of good enough sometimes people will do two and he's like i don't care i'm gonna do it five times and i kind of think there's 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 a magic in that it's almost between the developer kind of brain and the end user brain because it's almost an end user who's building it because it's his first thing and i feel like you guys have held on to that really well which I think that, I, I don't want to mention any names, obviously, but I think there are a lot of developers who all they care about is just want to push it out there for as cheap as possible, have the style that's kind of popular right now, so hopefully we get this. And then they listed at a ridiculous price. Right. I, I think it's naive for developers to believe that somebody who has the means to purchase a 10 you know, $15, $20 million house doesn't recognize quality. Yeah. You know, we see it all the time. People, you know, running their hands along the surfaces, you know, of our homes, feeling the finishes, testing yeah. the cabinetry. Um, and because they look at homes all the time, they recognize, have they seen something like this before? I mean, Augustine is great at that because he is the one who is most knowledgeable about construction. And so, you know, we were walking through a home today and uh, th- that was on Caravan and he, you know, pointed out, this is, and it was a $15 million home. Yeah. You know, this is crap. He was just pointing to a threshold, something as simple as a threshold. This, yeah. These are really cheap. And so um, maybe a home buyer isn't as in tune to detail as somebody who has a contractor's license on that. But um, but it doesn't surprise me that the developer of the, Bentley, of the Bentley house okay. was somebody who... Uh, who this was his first home because he probably did it as a passion project yeah. and applied his standard, not you know considering 
what is what is the most cost effective. And sometimes, like probably in this case, it pays off, and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah. But, because um, I suppose if that hadn't sold or kind of gone that quickly, he's kind of sitting there and he's put a huge amount of money into something that's basically kind of sitting there with big carrying costs and he's thinking, what have I done? Right. And, and look, at we all know money doesn't necessarily translate into taste. And there's a, there are a lot of homes that are brought to market that are uh, um, that you can tell the people that spend an incredible amount of money in developing yeah. them. Uh, but but they're not tasteful. Yeah, no, I can definitely agree with that one. Um, okay, George, let's get a bit more personal, actually, because I think our listeners out there, kind of, <laughs> they see the projects, but actually, okay. and, and, and we get some of this information out there, but I wanted to actually know, when did you kind of see yourself doing what you're doing now? Was it kind of you were young, growing up, and thinking, I really like property, real estate, and kind of creating that kind of element of it, or did you just kind of fall into it? How does well, that I didn't... Uh, I didn't see myself having a career in real estate. My my family I grew up in San Diego. My um, family was always always invested in small like apartment complexes. So I always oh, had okay. a love for real estate and always you know from the time I was young you know thought oh, I'm gonna own my own home. I mean I bought my first home when I was 22 years old wow. and it was always you know part of uh, my life. Um, but it wasn't actually until uh, you know after I met Augustine. Because he, his background was in real estate development, and in the a couple of downturns ago, because uh, he's worked in development since he was eighteen, uh, wow. the he ended up a developer he was working uh, with went, went out of business, and Augustine established his own general contracting company. And about two years after he established it, uh, because it was growing fairly quickly, yeah. and his background was all in construction and operations, but he didn't really have as strong a background in financing or administration, and, and I had a stronger background in that, um, is when he asked if I would join uh, the company and take over that end of it. So, was that after you guys were married or before that? Well, back then, that was, this was oh, in 97, yeah. so it wasn't illegal. Because <laughs> I, I know so, that from the UK's perspective, I think it was the 2007, maybe? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure when I it was legalized. It, yeah, and in the no, U.S. I mean, in the U.S. it was just within the past, you know, I mean, it, it went, it, nationally, I think it was within the past, you know, five years. I mean, California was one of the yeah, first. We were, we were actually married just less than three years ago. So, wow. um, but we had gone through a commitment ceremony about 22, 23 years ago. So, so you basically we had the party, just not the... <laughs> Did you wear a ring before your official wedding? Um, I we had rings, but we actually didn't wear them that often. When we were during the early stages of our of, of our business, we were actually doing more work with uh, renovating foreclosed property, not working in the luxury market at all. Really? Renovating foreclosed properties and developing affordable housing. So we did a lot of work with um, city redevelopment agencies and worked extensively in the Inland Empire. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I don't know that those those local governments in <laughs> San Bernardino or Moreno Valley or uh, Rialto uh, would have looked, how they would have looked at that. that. Yeah, you know. so but much. the interesting thing is, you know, now as, as an investor in property, yeah. um, uh, for any, for anybody who is an investor with us or a lender to us, they obviously have to find out about it first thing because yeah. they're reviewing our, 
finances. They see that we live together. Yeah. They, so have you ever they, had any issues with that? And obviously, if it's personal, you don't want to speak about it. Let me know. But no, in fact, I I, I would say just the opposite. Yeah. I think I think when people find out about our personal relationship, it's you know they feel as if more like they can trust us, yeah. like as if a barrier has been removed. Um, so no, we actually have never had. Uh, a negative experience with that yeah because that is amazing because i suppose actually if you look at the world like this is probably a great place to be a married man uh in that relationship but actually i suppose there's always going to be trials and tribulations that a lot of people just do not even think about when it comes to that but it's good to hear that actually it's been a really good experience because i suppose you're like seen as a power couple then almost leading a firm as opposed to being who's this guy over here well i mean i don't know about a power couple i think in los angeles we're very fortunate but it's it, we sort of live in a a bubble of tolerance yeah. on, on many different levels um, and we just have to keep sensitive to the fact that you know you can drive two hours away and be exposed so to true. discrimination and certainly going you know to other states so we feel very fortunate of the experience mm-hmm. <clears throat> that we have had and I think that uh, that I think by just being transparent and open uh, it ends up you know, bringing us closer to yeah. our business associates. Definitely, because I think that's always like, that's almost like the long-term mindset of like, you just always be honest and you're always kind of true to who you are and it plays out well in the end. It's the people who try and like trick you in the for the short-term reward that kind of it just doesn't play out well in any way. Right, I mean, I think in the business world, uh, you know, it's, um, people are too smart to, you know, eliminate uh, from consideration a, a developer, a service provider, anybody by virtue of some arbitrary thing like yeah. their sexual orientation, yeah. their ethnic- ethnicity, their religious uh, background. We have a very diverse um, company. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Okay, so originally, because you were in the Navy I was. before, so that's, I think to most people out there, is like, okay, so he was in the Navy and then ended up developing luxury property is quite a different switch it definitely is yeah <laughs> much more space in a luxury home than in the submarine and san diego has got a, a, quite a large navy community doesn't it in that part of the world it does i was actually stationed up in um, what is now closed but in the northern california uh what was mare island naval shipyard um which is in a city called vallejo um, is that close to san francisco it's actually close i lived in napa so it was about 15 minutes from napa it's on the east side of San Francisco, so it's about an hour away from San Francisco. Okay. So there was a, um, there was a, a, a shipyard there where they would do uh, repairs and renovations to submarines, but there, it was also the home base for two submarines, and that the submarine I was assigned to was there. And that's, because when you say an hour, like, east of San Francisco, I'm thinking that's inland, but presumably it's not, it's just where... Well, you have to be able to get on the water. Yeah, I'm <laughs> shipping boats for but an no, hour. It, it, takes you, it takes you about an hour to, to transit through San Francisco Bay, and to get under the bridge, and to go out to open ocean, so it is a little bit of a haul. So what age were you when you went into the Navy? Was that kind of like the, you know, 18-year-old who went in there or? No, I participated. uh, So it was right after I graduated from college. I participated in an ROTC program, which is where the the Navy paid for my education. Which is awesome. And then it's one way to pay for for school. I mean, it it was a wonderful experience. Yeah. And I'm glad I... Uh, I'm glad I went through it. Um, I think in my experience as being a submarine officer, where I was an economics major in 
uh, my undergrad, but when you, but I made the decision that I wanted to be on a submarine, and so you have to develop a competency in nuclear engineering, and I think I was What's probably it? a little bit naive <laughs> as to kind of the percentage of my life that that, w that would overtake, and it wasn't my strongest uh, aptitude, um, so... I mean, I don't think many people in the world would say, yeah, that is going to be their strongest <laughs> aptitude at all. So, anyway. That's crazy, so you basically kind of were doing some nuclear, and so you were on a submarine, which most people will be thinking that's the scariest thing ever, claustrophobic. What does that mean? Does that mean that you're just based on it and it's kind of, you get take it out for a day and it comes back in and you're just keeping it regular or are you spending more than one day a week kind of out in open ocean? No, I mean, when, when I was in the Navy way back when, um, that's when the former Soviet Union was still intact. And uh, so I would say the, the primary mission of the U.S.'s submarine fleet was doing intelligence gathering um, related to the Soviet Navy. So you can't and talk so, about that, maybe not. Well, I mean, I always used to say, you know, that, that old joke, I can tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. But, yeah. then, <laughs> but then everything I ended up doing in the submarine was you could read about now, so uh, in, in books, okay. which Augustine always jokes about. <laughs> I would never tell him anything, and then he's like, and I can read about it. Oh so, my god, that's crazy. Yeah. So, so you were allowed to mention any, there weren't any kind of bad moments where you were fearing of your life when you were in the Navy for them in that situation? No, I mean, I would say that, not, I would say not fearing for my life. And that certainly as a, in a submarine, the worst thing that can happen is that you are detected someplace that you're not supposed to be. Okay. And so, you know, there was one time where, uh, where we were someplace we weren't supposed to be and we had reason to believe that we had been detected. Um, but I think it, but as it turned out, we hadn't been, so... Yeah, because I imagine you're thinking, hey, they're going to drop depth charges, and then uh, what happens then? Right. I mean, well, I mean, not depth charges, but if, you know, with, in a submarine, you um, typically you're just listening to what's out in the water. Yeah. But if you think you find something, you can go what they call it go active, which means you're actually putting a noise out in the water to see what the reverberation is coming back. Okay. <clears throat> and so we had a, a Soviet submarine go active. On us, and so we thought we had been detected, which could, is, you know, sort of grounds for the captain of a, of a U.S. naval submarine to be relieved from duty. But as it turned out, that wow. didn't happen. <laughs> or we, and we weren't detected. That is so crazy. Because I think a lot of people just think, oh, yeah, you get in a submarine, you go off, and like, but I imagine life in that must be pretty different to the properties you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an understatement. Yeah, yeah. I know. I think, I, I think we. Build some master suites that are as big as. Yeah, I mean, I literally <laughs> could ask you a thousand questions about this, and I need to keep it more realistic because otherwise, everyone out there is going to be like, "Why are you just oh, asking yeah, about?" Yeah. Um, so that is awesome, George. So uh, you kind of are there any skills there that you developed where you're kind of looking at it now? Because I suppose if you're doing economics, I can't. I suppose are you doing calculations and things when you were on the submarine and that no, kind of side? I, I, the my time on the submarine really didn't involve a lot of business oriented things. Okay. I, mean, I think if anything, the, the, probably the main thing that it developed that is still with me today is, is a strong work ethic. I discipline. You literally had to work seven hour days when you were, uh, seven days a week when you were out at sea. And, uh, and so I think any of the military branches probably develops in people a strong work habit. Yeah. I mean, that, and I yeah. show up on time for appointments. <laughs> Which in LA is rare. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Actually really rare. That's what, <laughs> one thing that I think I'm adjusting to that, which I'm kind of like looking at it. I'm like, I think this is kind of good in a way because I don't mind when people turn up late to everything. 
but equally like now I'm texting people like oh, I'm gonna be five minutes late you know, <laughs> is that okay and I'm like that was not me in London at all because yeah. people's time is everything okay Joe so left the Navy after kind of that time that was presumably you they paid for your education you need to give them how many years is uh, well five for the submarine program five for the submarine program so you did your five years Correct. was it emotional leaving the navy at all or are you quite happy to kind of no i was happy you were happy yeah i hadn't done my time and like that was yeah it. i mean like i said i think the biggest part was that the technical aspect occupied a, a significant portion of my life which yeah. was challenging for me and i I, I recognize that I had strong aptitudes in other areas, and I, so it was sort of like beating my head against the wall to say, look, I'm, I'm killing myself to barely yeah. achieve competency in nuclear engineering when I probably could be doing something with the same amount of effort that I could excel at. So you just had really good self-awareness, and you're looking at yourself and being like, this is not something I would... Like, if it was something that you really enjoyed doing, I suppose you're going to push yourself to try and get better and better, whether you're, and you're like, actually, I don't see this as something that I actually want to be doing that's not the same I mean, I, it was a combination of things. That was probably the strongest element. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that I wasn't a huge fan of was the distinction between the officer and the enlisted. And I was on the better side of it because yeah. I was an officer. Um, but, you know, it's sort of like this class system, uh, you know, where we would sit down at a uh, dining room table, have, you know, have our, you know, meals served to us, you know, by people wearing white gloves and silver platters. Cause really? The, the Navy is very formal that way. Uh, probably the British Navy is the same. I think. Thing. I, I was just trying to think. I think and, like uh, they definitely have the separation of like officers eat separately to the things, right. but I don't know about the white gloves because that's pretty <laughs> incredible. And then the you know the enlisted guys would be lining up you know with their plastic trays and you know that's just kind of one example. So I wasn't a big fan of that. And yeah. then the, I would say the third element was the whole you know gay thing. I mean, the, my last year in the Navy is when I recognized that about myself. And at that time, you know, you, you could still be processed. It was before even Don't Ask, Don't Tell, which was implemented by Bill Clinton. Really? Um, and so you could still be processed out, and I knew people who had been processed out. So That, was, just, that seems crazy to me that that's not that long ago, almost. Well, I mean, it is, it's long ago, <laughs> but it's still, like, it's not yeah, crazy same. time. And, like, that is Bill Clinton's passing a law which allows gay men to stay in. Right. That's crazy. So, so you never kind of came out while you were in that no, environment? No, no. Because I imagine back then that must have been horrendous to like try and deal with if someone did do that. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I certainly on a submarine. It, um, yeah, it, it's I would say very hard to get away with because there's you know a, it's just a very small crew, like 120 people. But on on you just have to play the odds on an aircraft carrier, for example, where there's 3,000 yeah. men. You know, there, there's obviously there was obviously a large um, population of gay men, and I think realistically, um, it was very selective. If somebody did their job and was good at it, people would just sort of turn their head the other way. Yeah. But, but you can be open about it. And I expect, kind of, in that environment, it's almost like that kind of matey kind of, you know, there's people jeering things and that kind of thing. And in a small environment like a submarine, that could be absolutely mental if that ever kind of became known by the, the staff or the right. yeah. guys on the, the crew. Yeah. Okay, so you leave the you leave the navy. Right. Happy to leave. What happens then? Are you going straight into the luxury? Sorry, the development kind of side, or no? I so I relo- I was up in Northern California. I relocated to Los Angeles. I was working actually in industrial supply distribution management. Wow. And uh, loved it. It was 
about that was during the time that I first met Augustine. Okay. And um, so I was working in that uh, when he started his business. And it was about two years into his business that um, that he talked to me about joining it. So yeah, was, and was there any fear of going back to kind of what we started talking about, where you were like, "Look, this is my kind of guy that I spend twenty four hours a day with, and it's my life partner." Do how do you guys separate the stresses of the day to day business as opposed to actually? I would say now, uh, you know, we've been together twenty seven years now. Wow. So now we have we've sort of achieved a, a method that works. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of strain and, uh, and struggle um, because when you're business partners, at the end of the day, the business almost always comes first. Yeah. And so it's generally not something that I would recommend uh, to a couple because I think that there is, um, it's positive to a relationship when there's some separation during the day yeah. and you can come back at the end of the day and talk about your days with each other you know now yeah. I talk to him a dozen times a day I know exactly what's going on you know in his life but but we've you know now I would say um, we're very sensitive to each other if one person says that they don't want to talk about something you know, work, you know we yeah. okay like you know that's cool yeah because like, that literally someone said to me yesterday like so what's your kind of work hours and I was like there aren't really work hours and I think it's this kind of similar for you guys where it's you're just constantly like, I'll answer phones at 11 o'clock in the evening and then you know 4 o'clock in the afternoon something there's something not going on and I suppose that when it comes to a relationship is really tough because it's not like you can you know you always have to set parameters of like we're not just going to talk business all the time right there has to be some separation there and I would say we're we're pretty good at that. Plus, his <clears throat> we have different roles in the company, so we're not doing the, the uh, same thing. And yeah. he doesn't, you know, want to to get involved in most of the areas that I handle, which is the the financing side. And I don't want to get involved, nor do I have the knowledge of the construction side. Okay. So he spends much more time out in the field and at the properties than than I do. Yeah. Yeah. That is amazing, yeah, because I think that's that's like a real, that's a real example of like, you know that you've really found someone that you can live <laughs> with for a long time, when you can actually work together all the day, live together, do everything, like, I don't know how my wife and I would do that. <laughs> I'm just trying to think now. Well, we think may hard, find it, think but long I, and hard yeah. about it. Don't listen to this, <laughs> no, this is um, Okay, so, go back a little bit more, okay, so sorry, you joined that company, started doing, um, more rehab projects so the kind of smaller style less work because obviously you've got the structure there and you're rehabilitating it but what was the point at which you guys switched from doing those kind of everyday properties into the kind of luxury stuff that you do now so i would say in the last downturn which happened during the 2007 2008 yeah. when the subprime mortgage market collapsed yeah you know, we were in the worst possible place possibly possible we were building new homes in San Bernardino. Uh, um, and so uh, when things bottomed out, uh, we we positioned ourselves to be able to take advantage of some federally funded programs that were where cities and nonprofit organizations were being assigned grants to go out and purchase uh, foreclosed properties and renovate them and sell them to low to moderate income families and, and we were successful in acting as an intermediary for, you know, probably about a dozen of the different grantees. And during that time, there was a, um, an organization that was founded, um, which was a great organization to serve as 
uh, a channel by which the people who were receiving these federal funds yeah. could purchase foreclosed properties directly from the lender without going kind of to the open market. And initially, the, the lenders were actually giving discounts because they didn't have to fix them up, they didn't have to market them, they didn't have to pay sort of full agent commissions. And during that process, uh, you know, we, because the federal funds were um, allocated by uh, census tracts, by affordable census tracts. Okay, yeah. And so we would be getting lists um, of homes that are available from the banks, and only some of them would fall in these census tracts. And and uh, we were able to tell that some of the ones that were falling outside of the census tract based on the discounts that the banks was offering and what we sort of saw the market, you know, to be that we could make them work, you know, just kind of doing it ourselves yeah. if we fixed them up and, and resold them. So we got approval um, to be able to do that as long as we committed to renovate the homes and sell them to owner-occupants as opposed to investors. And, and we probably did about 150 homes and you know, two to three years through that program. Wow. And all of those homes were uh, were priced, you know, under $500,000, yep. you know, when, when we resold them. And then, and and we raised investor money in order to support our efforts in doing that. And then in that process, we identified a couple homes that were, the first two homes I remember were in the Lake Hollywood area. Yeah. Uh, you know, near Universal City. Definitely. And where they were in the, Four to five hundred thousand dollar range, where we could sell them in the low to mid one millions, and then and so we did those. We by doing those, we established a relationship with a real estate agent who had more experience working in uh, the luxury market. Okay, and so he started bringing us opportunities. Um, some opportunities, and you know we literally just started stepping kind of it up, uh, where you know it went from. The four to five hundred thousand selling in the low millions to him bringing us a house that was a million dollars that we could sell for two million and then two million dollars that we could sell for four million and then I think it was probably that level we actually did a house and the, most of these were because in there, he specializes more in the Los Feliz okay yeah. area in the, the east side and so we we ended up uh, developing a home on Nottingham Avenue and selling it to. Michael C. Hall, who was the actor from Dexter, yeah, <clears throat> and and in that process, there was actually um, a consultant that we had a relationship with that had sort of put together a network of um, many of the agents that we work with today, yeah. who was trying to match agents with you know quality developers and brought several agents to see what we had done there, you know, and it included. You know Ernie Carswell and yeah. Todd Baker and Steve Frankel and Some of the big names. Uh, you know a, a, again a lot of the people that we you know still to this day have um, relationships with and as a as a result of that um, you know some of these other agents started then you know bringing us opportunities and I think one of the things that a, a lot of them had worked with a different um, sort of different developer who was a much larger organization and, and, you know, all these agents are kind of wealthy in their own right and very successful in their own right. And they don't need to work with developers and they will only do it if the, the, the experience is a positive one for them. And so uh, they sort of were coming off of working with another developer that was a, a big organization. And I think didn't sort of have kind of didn't, 
put a high level of importance on the personal relationship with them yeah. the way Augustine and I do. And I think a lot of these agents then appreciated you know, that yeah. when they wanted to show us a property, they were dealing directly with the owner of the company, that you know, Augustine would drop, all they had to do was call him up on the phone, he would drop what he was doing, you know, to go out and look at it, give them instant feedback. And so, you know, as a result of that, um, that's when we started transitioning more. And, you know, by this time, I think we purchased our first, uh, our first luxury property that sold over a million dollars in yeah. 2011. By 2013, foreclosures had pretty much dried up. Yeah. You know, so that's when we really started transitioning. And, you know, along with, you know, the opportunities, we had to find different equity investors as well. Yeah. So, you know, some of our equity investors sort of stayed with us and grew with us and then ultimately introduced us to new relationships. And they introduced us to new relationships. And, and we were fortunate that we were able to, to uh, obtain the support of different equity partners um, in order to pursue... Uh, more complex projects, yeah. which was good and bad. <laughs> but that's so. So basically, kind of, if you if someone out there is listening and they're like, actually, I want to be a luxury developer one day, would you say that's kind of one of your key points to like success is actually keeping that personal face with the people you're dealing with, as opposed to trying to scale it to a point where you have five secretaries answering the phone to try and arrange showings and losing the actual connections yeah, within I mean, the market you're trying to sell property so i would say everybody has a uh, has a different business model yeah and so i think it really depends on what somebody's ultimate goal is i mean there's you know there's a uh, a developer who is very active in los angeles who sells properties primarily in like the three to five million dollar range or yeah. three to six million dollar range and you know but he he is a machine he yeah. churns and you know he churns them out and his business model is different you know, than what ours is. And I, I, I'm not criticizing it. And yeah. he's been very successful from everything, you know, I know. So I, I commend him. It's just different than, than what ours is. So I, I think for us, that has been one of the elements that has allowed us to um, receive uh, opportunities where agents want to bring us opportunities, especially yeah. if they're off-market opportunities before they maybe bring them to other people. Um, because, you know, the other, the other element of it is because we involve the agents we work with very extensively through the design and development process. I think we, even when we were doing the workforce housing, I remember, because we did a lot of track, we did, you know, sort of these, these track homes in San Bernardino. And, yeah. and so we ended up buying a home in Echo Park to renovate. And we, we put, you know, probably what were like track type of finishes in it and the you know the agent and then you know after we were done we sort of handed it over to it's an agent and he's like you guys are idiots you know because it was echo park i mean this is yeah. i mean now echo park has been gentrified a lot you know uh, and i'm not saying it would go over well now but it certainly would then you know they wanted you know they wanted kitschy they wanted you know things that were nostalgic yeah. and uh, authentic you know in character you know the vintage, you know, handles hardware uh, on the doors, and so uh, so we learn very early on. You know, it's very important to uh, involve the the real estate agents who understand the market. Now, I would say with the, the track record, I think we've developed we've we've developed a solid understanding now 
uh, of Each what, area, the, what the, the yeah. markets demand. And so I think unless we're going into a new area that we haven't operated before, you know, generally speaking, we can make those a lot of those decisions. That is, yeah, because that's really interesting. Because actually, I think that's almost... I was chatting to some people the other day about this because I think there's such a... Now we have a distribution of information the way it is. I think there's a whole like element when we're shooting the documentary about the creating of the projects that you guys do. Because like, I've seen some of your Instagram posts and stuff like that and it's you guys literally walking around the property and like Augustine's kind of pointing this out and then getting a feedback from whoever's doing that part. And it just seems to me like that's just fascinating because if I bought a house that you guys had created, being able to see that is kind of awesome. Well, I think that's one of the reasons, you know, hopefully when we talked earlier about how sometimes, you know, homes tend to be the reflection of a single person's vision. And I think you can tell when you look at those types of Instagram posts that it's not. There's a lot of input that goes in from our real estate agents to our architects to our interior designer, you know, to to me, you know, to say, and I'm, I'm sort of the voice of, livability like nobody's gonna live like this you know you have to you know um and and augustine has a very keen sense of aesthetic uh and and great aesthetic so you know hopefully we uh achieve a balance plus i think i'm more active in um in going out and looking at uh properties that are available in the same price points in the same markets so i can get a sense of what is everybody you know, doing what is the expectation at the price point that we're dealing with in terms of, you know, closets or yeah. parking, or, you, you know, amenity, amenities. So with that, then, is that something that, um, w- what is your thoughts on pricing then? Because I think we've had, a, a, obviously, very strong markets in LA for the last seven, eight years now. Right. So it becomes a situation where, in my head, it's, there's a lot of the people that build the luxury one, almost when they built it, they just want to have a go. It's kind of like, let's put it at this price because who knows, someone may come in and get right. it. What, do you, what are your thoughts on that? Because I think we've heard situations where that's paid off. You know, someone's literally done that and they've got a ridiculous, like actually, uh, Lenny Kravitz design. That's the sort of the iconic yeah. example. 100%. And it's kind <laughs> of like, okay, yeah, I understand. But, and... I suppose when you finish the product and you're thinking about the price and you're discussing it with the agent and that kind of thing, how do you feel generally about your projects with that? Is it let's price it competitively and get it off the market as soon as possible or let's take the risk of putting it at a slightly higher price, seeing how it does and then reduce it? Because I think there's a lot of people that see price reductions or days on market can be quite detrimental to just the general vibe of the property, really. Right. I mean, I think the way we're structured and with our investor base, you know, it is always in our best interest to um, price a property realistically to get activity quickly. And, and sometimes we, we, you know, don't make the right call. Yeah. Um, you know, more often than not, I would say we do. But we've had properties that have lingered on the, the, the market for a while. I think we're getting... Um, better at it you know there are there will be times when we're coming to market if we're not certain where we believe the the pricing should be that we'll actually invite a handful of agents that are active in that market to come in and preview the property and give us their opinion as to where they think we should be priced yeah the the intent of that is to try and avoid a complete misfire Uh, um, you know but yeah I mean I think you know, when you give examples like the Stanley House that Lenny Kravitz designed, it's 
um, you know, it's like winning the lottery, yeah. you know, and, but then everybody else thinks that they can do, do it, it yeah. and the result is that you have these homes that sit on the market for uh, a year yeah, or more. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the, you know, the one perfect example is the house that I think 1814 Doheny, which sold three years ago for $20 million, and then they put it back on the market, and now it's down to less than fifteen. I didn't even know that. I need yeah. to look at that. We actually need to talk about that because that's quite an interesting <laughs> one. I think that's incredible. Yeah. Because you think three years later, okay, it's appreciated in value, and then you're literally taking a $5 million loss on it. Right. I mean, I think that, I, I, I think, you know, at the time that it sold, it was a great price, and everybody recognized that it was a great price, and, and people think that they can repeat that, and sometimes yeah. you can't. Because you, you know, literally just it. need to have someone fall in love with something, don't you? And it needs to be the person that can afford to buy it to literally walk in there and say, right, I need to have this no matter kind of what it costs me and to literally hit that every time. Right. And my understanding, like, of the, my, I, from what I heard, the buyer of the Stanley house was an international buyer. Yeah. They didn't have probably a sense of the fact that that was a very high value for that specific, you know, neighborhood. And yeah. they probably just loved the house and like said, I don't care. <laughs> yeah. You know what I paid. But, you know, every, you know, when... You know, Megan Ellison bought one Electra yeah. so many years ago and, you know, initially paid $20 million and then the additional $10 million for the land around it. You know, everybody thought, everybody was saying, okay, it's it's jumping Laurel Canyon. Like, yeah. the high prices are jumping Laurel Canyon. And all of these agents brought us, you know, opportunities, you know, in, in Mount Olympus and, you know, you know, going on. But it never really happened. Nah. So... And that is also the weird thing I found with LA because it's almost so spread out and it's almost because I because I'm, I'm talking from the London perspective of this is the centre yeah. and then you move out and you move out and London because it's contained by a green belt it kind of only can really go up yeah. it, it you know you just lose that whereas LA it's almost eight different cities because and as you were saying with like the different markets it's like different vibe in each area Venice kind of buyer is very different to the person that necessarily buys in Bel Air or you know, it's, it's, and I always find that's quite difficult with pricing, kind of, because you look at like transitional, I always used to think with London and you look at it and it's like, right, this area's got to a certain price point, all of the areas slightly further out in not quite as desirable location would benefit because right. obviously the people are like, oh, I can get, you know, a bit more space for my money in that area. Whereas LA, certain areas of LA do that, but it does, it's just, someone will jump from one part to another part and then it, it, I find that tough. Right, right. I mean, I th yeah, pricing is, I mean, we, we obviously establish pricing when yeah. we first buy a property, what, what do we believe we can sell it for? And, and, you know, it's never our goal to have to break a record in a neighborhood in order to make a deal work, even though, you know, we've broken several neighborhood yeah. uh, uh, price records. Um, sometimes, you know, we will have to, we will uh, purchase a property, right. recognizing That's that we're going to have to set a a price record. I mean, that happened in Outpost Estates, you know, when we did this property on La Presa, I don't know if you yeah, ever saw it. I didn't, yeah, um, so that was a Spanish-style home, but, you know, Outpost Estates was sort of typified by a bunch of homes that were smaller scale, and this was over an 8,000-square-foot house. It had 180-degree unobstructed views, and so we recognize this is a very, very, you know, special home. Yeah. And, uh, um, but generally speaking, we don't, you know, we, you know, Number one, we don't rely on price appreciation, and number yeah. two, you know, we definitely look for um, real comps to support what we think we can sell our property for. Because that does seem a bit of the thing. It's like some of the developers, they're like, it's almost an ego thing for them. 
they want to be the guy that has the highest price, so they go for it. Right. As opposed to, and I feel like if I was in the situation you, you're in, it, I would be like, you know, I would create a beautiful, gorgeous property, but I wouldn't want to put myself in the position where I had to get the record price to actually make it worthwhile the most. Like, well, I think a lot of these guys don't have to get the record price, yeah. but I, th- I think, especially if, you know, there's some very, very high net worth individual who has self-funded and maybe he doesn't have any debt on mm-hmm. the property and he can say, like, look at all... You know, I can put this out there for, uh, um, you know, and, 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 you know, let's see what the market bears. And, you know, unfortunately, what happens a lot of those times is, you know, those people will get offers early on yeah. that they will reject. And, you know, a, a year later, they're accepting an offer that's $5 million less. <laughs> yeah, it's so funny, isn't it, how people's minds change in that time? Because I suppose every night they're just thinking, like, oh, God, it hasn't sold, it hasn't sold, it hasn't sold, it hasn't sold, and they're, like, in that position, which I always don't think I would like that much. Well, I mean, at some point, you have to accept market reality and just bite the bullet. Just do it. Um, And so with that, actually, because I think that there's a huge amount of people that out there think, oh, developer, and it's more like the Augustine thing of, like, they do the construction and they do whatever, but the massive part of it is making sure that that investment is a good investment and that the economics and the financials play out. How is there a do you just use Excel or are there ways? How do you manage that and present that and do it on a day to day basis? I mean, every, ultimately everything comes to Excel, right? It's the That's most it's the most flexible thing yeah. really that, uh, that that you can have. And, and, and our underwriting, I think, has gotten um, you know more advanced in terms of um, you know all of our assumptions and you know, our holding periods for the, for the pre-development phase and the construction phase yeah. and, the, and the sales phase and what are, you know, typically if we're doing new construction, we'll close on a property with one loan and then we'll, when we're ready to go to construction, we'll refinance to another loan and what are the assumptions, you know, that, that go along with that, you know, and all of the holding costs and the, the cost of construction and, um, and then the return and then phasing our investors, you know, equity contributions and what are their return expectations um, in terms of presenting the information to them um, from the quantitative perspective. And then there's, you know, really the qualitative perspective. You know, we will draft an investment memo for every one of our uh, projects that we will put out to investors explaining why do we believe that this is an, an exceptional opportunity and giving sort of background on the neighborhood and the the uh, you know the strength of the market and the opportunity itself so do you when you sit down in front of the computer and you open up excel you get excited about it <laughs> like for me it is the complete opposite of that oh yeah i just i don't know what it is and i think it's just me probably not being self-aware enough to realize that i'm just i'm good at organizing things to a certain extent i.e content like that kind of side and i like to think that i'd sit down in front of an excel spreadsheet and i just go away but do you enjoy it it's kind of like that i mean well uh yeah i wouldn't say i get excited about it but okay. it certainly excel doesn't intimidate me and i'm very um comfortable using it Putting a couple of I, I, every day just... yeah and i mean I, I use it on a daily basis so you know i sort of have to be able to um be adept at it yeah yeah because and have you felt that that has improved over your time oh absolutely yeah. i mean if you looked at the performance that we did when we first started yeah. you know these sort of one page things that were very very um simplified and so again as we have you know taken things into you know consideration you know we've tried to add um uh kind of as much detail as possible to make sure that we're um we're capturing everything and so would you say that like your projections are be- have become more accurate 
I think our, our certainly our underwriting has become more conservative. I mean, I think okay. I, I think when we probably five years ago, um, when we first started transitioning from even doing the luxury, what I would say, cosmetic rehabs to doing more complex properties, I think we uh, underestimated the the time for both uh, entitlement and construction okay. and the cost of construction. And I, I would say through experience, yeah. um, we have uh, we imp- have improved upon that. So now we are, you know, very concerned. I mean, you know, we used to under, underwrite um, new construction projects, you know, to be an 18 month full holding period, you know, where, you know, the entitlement sometimes can just take six yeah. months, you yeah. know, uh, on them. So, you know, now we're being more realistic. We're looking at our track record, what, what it's taken, you know, and, and because we're, you know, because we're not really doing sort of the, just the simple, you know, Beverly Grove, you know, yeah. buy a lot, build a house. But, you know, most of what we're doing is either hillside or has, has some level of complexity, you know, things take a little bit more time. I mean, we're just starting construction, uh, now, you know, on a property, beautiful, what will be a beautiful home in Mandeville Canyon where, you know, it was, it's part of a private street and we had to get an amendment to the private uh, street. Uh, We're not on the sewer system. So we had to get the approval of a, of a, an advanced, you know, wastewater system or septic system. Um, and so all of those things, you know, take time and getting, you know, clear. There were, there's, you know, probably 15 protected trees. So you have to get a tree report and that has to be submitted and you have to get your clearances. So it, it, you know, it's just a matter of during due diligence identifying this is everything that we have to do and making sure that we're, you know, uh, accounting for enough time and and at the end of the day, if it, you know, if we can't, uh, if it if it impacts the the underwriting, you know, being willing to pull out of the deal. Yeah, and I suppose what about that kind of thing? Because obviously, when you're going through the entitlement process constantly, you're presumably making connections, and you're kind of recognised when you're getting these entitles done. Right. Are those relationships and almost being able to pick up the phone and saying, "Look, we're thinking about doing this. What are your thoughts on?" Does that has that helped the process? Oh, for sure. Or? I mean, when the you know, as soon as we go under contract on a property, the first thing we do is we bring out our entire team of people, you know, to to talk about the property and what are you know, and, and what are the issues for consideration. So yeah. we'll bring out a geologist, a civil engineer, yeah. an expediter, you know, who knows everything about the city of Los Angeles, because most of our stuff is still in the city, city. of LA, in the city of LA, um, you know, and can say, okay, this, you know, this road is substandard. If you want to develop here, you're going to have to expand, you know, the road by so many feet or the driveway yes, yes. by so many feet. And, uh, you know, so yeah, those relationships are so valuable, and I suppose it's kind of actually in the long run because it actually saves you so much time and effort and being able to like get the answers almost instantly. Uh, hopefully, it keeps you out of trouble. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay, George. So we're actually we're actually we've just gone over an hour, which to me is crazy. <laughs> because so I think we should try and uh, wrap this up pretty okay. pretty quickly because obviously we realise everyone out there's got stuff to do themselves and we don't sure. want to take up too much of their time. But this has actually been fantastic. George, so I wanted to obviously pass on all your information if people want to follow you, see what A&R are doing and all that kind of thing. But actually, I thought it might be good to just get a couple of quick questions in before the end. Of course. And then just see if we can just kind of give as many people some value before we close out as possible. Um, Okay, quickly. So is there a favorite project you've ever done in LA? I I would say that there's not one project that says overall it was my favorite. I think that there are different elements. different elements of each project that have been, 
you know, favorites of mine. I think that, um, you know, the, the home that we did at 1910 Dollar Road, which yeah. was sort of set on the, the banks of the Stone Canyon Reservoir, which was a home we bought from I was Del obsessed Reese. with that because of the finishes in it as well. Oh, what, what was that? The designer was from the Oman Oh, uh, right. We saw Sayad, yeah, she, yeah. I remember walking into that and actually, like, it was one of my favorite. I literally, I, whenever I drive past the front gates of that one, every person that I'm with in the car, I'm like, you need to see inside that one. <laughs> I don't know what it is, that one. Uh, it's one of my favorites I've ever seen in LA, so I can definitely see why there's Thank some you. No, I appreciate that. And yeah, so that was certainly one of my favorites. I think that home that we did uh, last year in Nichols Canyon, where we set a record there, um, was one of my favorites, just because I think it was very distinctive architecturally yeah. and unexpected, because we had sort of a, a modern, contemporary um, courtyard-style house with you know these twisted... Oh. Um, you know, roof lines, yeah. and um, we got a lot of uh, positive feedback um, from from that. And then I think you know one of the one of the early properties that we did um, in Los Feliz, uh, which we we ended up setting a price record there too for a little while on Aberdeen, which was a restoration of a of a Spanish home where the there, there's a great story behind it because the the former owner. Um, his wife divorced him and, and in, a, in an attempt to win her back he made these modifications to install like medieval turrets on to the house and so part of the restoration was removing those but it was a very beautiful Aberdeen is a really beautiful street where some yeah. of the, the highest end homes in Los Feliz uh, are and it was a very special I think restoration of the Spanish um, home that um, that we got multiple offers on the first week that we... That's incredible. Out. Yeah, so not one project, but different elements and different projects. Yeah. Okay. Okay, what about this? Um, best area to develop in LA and the worst area from your experience that you've been in? I, you know, I don't, I don't think that there are necessarily um, bad areas to develop in LA. I think one of the things we were talking about before is we typically will avoid uh, purchasing properties in neighborhoods that require uh, discretionary approval and that can be time-consuming approval yeah. so we will not purchase properties that require so coastal commission approval um, we will um, generally speaking we will not purchase properties that um, require Mulholland scenic corridor approval mm -hmm. even though the one we did in Nichols Canyon uh, did and we've done we did one before that um, but the, the the, the, the time to finish them is taking much longer now, which is a shame because you would think, you know, for things visible from the Mulholland Scenic Corridor, uh, you would hope that the city would provide more of an expedited yeah. processing time to encourage people to develop beautiful, you know, properties. Yeah. Uh, because the development community, I think, as a whole has uh, avoided it. But yeah, in the areas that we, you know, build, I mean, a lot of people, for example, you know, and, our, and ourselves included have, have said, you know, the, I think the Bird Streets are getting a very bad reputation recently because of a lot of the inventory. You know, but if you actually look, you know, right now, it, it depends. I think in the price range you're looking at. Yeah. If you look in the ten to sixteen million dollar price range, which is a general price range that we would operate in, there's actually pretty balanced inventory in the in the Hollywood Hills overall. Yeah. So, um, so I think you just have to be cautious. I mean, I think. As the we recognize um, that the market has softened, and it has. I mean, the, the, yeah. just the 
quantitatively, the number of transactions of properties it's above five million and above, you know, ten million have gone down. And I think, you know, we are always looking for properties that are special and unique, mm-hmm. um, uh, because I think when the market softens, sort of the cream rises to the top. Hundred percent. And um, and you can find those in any neighborhood. Okay. So it, it kind of varies in kinds of the area, the different areas of the neighborhoods and whether they've kind of got those restrictions that kind of are going to make it a nightmare for you to actually develop in. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that is probably the biggest impediment as opposed to saying, you know, I'm not going to buy a home in Truesdale Estates or I'm not going to, you know, buy a home in, you know, Outpost Estates. Yeah, okay. Okay, so what about this? Um, I've been seeing, and actually I think most people have been seeing quite a, an emergence of a different trend, which at the moment seems to be a lot of backlit marble, <laughs> onyx kind of things, which I'm not the biggest fan of. I've got people that I very much respect and I love their taste and they absolutely love it. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that's going to continue and that's going to be a... I think it's, you know, I, I think that along with several other things are, um, are, are trends that probably are not, you know, uh, in, enduring. So... I think when you first see it, like in the first couple homes that you see, it, oh, you think this is really cool. Yeah, and then you start seeing it more and more, and you're like, all right, I've seen this, you know, over and over again. And we, you know, we say that we see the same things for several different kind of finished selections. Yeah. Uh, so I think there's, you know, one of the trends that you're seeing now in in ultra luxury homes is these sort of lower level health and wellness centers yeah, yeah uh, you know with the you know with the Spouse cryogenics the chamber room, yeah. and the green room like with the live plants and the and the massage room and the the infrared you know sauna and you know i i don't know i mean we don't we don't do that type of thing and, yeah um uh but i don't that to me is probably another you know, some I think developers probably feel like they have to offer something that sets them apart, and maybe that's a so it's a bit more of a fad that kind of will probably go away, as opposed to being a trend that's going to be here for the next twenty years, thirty years plus. I mean, I think it's it's more interesting to see like, you know, to see how people end up using the house. Like, I love when I see homes of ours that have come back on the market yeah. for resale because I always love to go in them and see did the people do anything, and if so. You know what do they do? Yeah, because then that sort of reflects. Uh, you know, that helps us to say how should we design homes to better accommodate the buyers. Okay, that wasn't going to be one of my questions, but uh, that's just made me think I need to ask this. Uh, what? How is that? Do, is that varying from the buyer to the buyer that you guys actually stay in touch with them and that kind of relationship is built, or do you guys always make a kind of concerted effort to? Well, we uh, well. First of all, all of the homes that we sell, we sell with a one-year fin- finish warranty. Oh, yeah, we offer. Uh, we have a full-time customer service <clears throat> manager that is responsible for that. So we get an abundance of information um, from him. I mean, the thing that I find uh, sort of the most hilarious is is the the care and everything that we will put into selecting finishes, and then. You know, in several homes, you know, he'll go in after the fact and say they ripped out everything <laughs> that you did. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're um, like, okay, fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Which I don't, I mean, look at they when, when they buy the exactly. home, they can do whatever they they want with them. And I think that there's a lot of very um, savvy interior designers that are out there that recognize that they have to, you know, support their clients' wishes to buy a home. Yeah. Because um, they don't want to, because if they don't, then they won't get any work out of it. And then once they close escrow, 
then they convince them to start changing everything. Out. Really, that's yeah. such an interesting. I love that. Yeah. That's actually a really interesting insight. The home that we that I mentioned that we did in uh, in Los Feliz at, on Aberdeen, we actually ended up delaying it coming to market for a couple of months because we had ordered all of this really beautiful Moroccan tile um, that that got delayed and coming oh, from overseas. God. And the, the woman who bought the house imme- immediately like ripped it out and replaced it all with white subway tile. Oh, <laughs> my God. You must have been thinking of one. I'm like, can we have that back, please? Yeah, we'll use it on the next one. Um, okay, so what about personally? You guys do a variety of styles, and actually we've just discussed how you pick the area, what you, you think is going to be. What about you personally? Is there a specific architectural style that you think, if I was going to b- build my dream home one day and kind of be there, you'd pick that out if you were going to have it and I'll build it for you. Well, I think, you know, I think you said something to this effect earlier, like when we're building new construction, mm-hmm. I think people value authenticity yeah. and more often than not, if you're building new and for A&R, if we're building new, we will build something that is contemporary or has contemporary lines. I think we're... As in if you're kind of knocking it down and going from the ground up and a brand new thing, just kind of, keeping the dirt yeah we're not gonna i mean we're not gonna build uh, like a new spanish style house or a new craftsman style house Mm -hmm. you know i we love like rest restoring those types of homes but i think people recognize uh and appreciate authenticity if that's what they're looking for but if you're building from the ground under construction you know i probably would be you know more inclined to to uh to do um contemporary but i think we like the homes I think we bring to market um, and develop, uh, I think we focus on doing sort of warm um, contemporaries. Like we don't, we don't do any of our homes where uh, almost all of our homes, the majority of the living areas have, you know, warm wood flooring. Yeah. Like we're not doing this big, you know, white tile or white terrazzo um, flooring just because I just don't think it's comfortable um, you know, warm cabinetry. Nice. I always um, feel like that. It's like nice walking into a hotel lobby on that, but it, when it's your home, it doesn't, to me, feel like that works. Right, like, right. Day to day, just to like, okay, I'm getting bored of this very quickly, and there's no real, like, character and kind of heart tugs to it. Right, but I think it also depends on, you know, like what neighborhood you're in. You know, like if you were to do a contemporary, I mean, and this is, you, you talked about as personally, like if I, if for some reason I wanted to live in Hancock Park, I wouldn't build a contemporary home in Hancock Park because yeah, okay. it's just out of character for but the neighborhood. Is there not like you and Augustine see a property and he's like, I think that's beautiful. We should live in something like that one day and we're going to build that out? Or He always says he wants to build a, a home. Yeah. I mean, right now we live on a condo, okay. and it, which is hilarious because, you know, we we, uh, we build all these beautiful homes. <laughs> most of which are much bigger homes than anything that I would want for myself. Yeah. It's just the, the, the two of us. So... Uh, um, but ultimately, yeah. But there's never like, okay, you're like, oh, you know, if we were going to have the dream home, you know, you're not, you're not leading. It's more the authenticity you're attracted to as opposed to like being drawn to like one kind of style as over the other. Yes. Okay. And then is that the same with Augustine? And, and, and I would say the setting too. Okay, that's a question we actually get a lot of actually is, uh, do you get bored of the view? I, I don't. Coming home to it every day, it doesn't become normal. No. To you. Because <laughs> that's what I always imagine. Because we see it on mansion tours. I'm there in like 20 minutes, and we've got some friends and family and some clients who have that property. But I never spend more than a week in one of them. So it becomes to me like, do you after two years of coming home to the same view? That's just normal, and your brain is like, 
or are you still thinking wow as you walk in? No, we actually we we really enjoy um, like the view that we have. Yeah. Now and we, yeah, we know we never get tired of it. Okay. So. All right, <laughs> all right, I think we should wrap up there because okay. actually, I think we just literally, but we need to have you on here again because I think there's so many topics which I didn't even get through a third of the questions I was going to ask you. Well, and thank actually, you, I really enjoyed it. I appreciate you inviting me. Hundred percent. So, George, if anyone's out there, um, they can obviously go online and kind of look up your website, anrsignature.com. Com, right. So you can go to that, and actually, you've got all your old projects on there and the stuff you're working on now. We do. And so, I would advise anyone out there if you're wanting to see what. A&R and George have created definitely go there and have a look you're also on Instagram uh, A&R Signature Collection A&R Signature Signature Collection so people can go on there and actually you guys are doing some kind of cool updates of actually the projects as they're going through the process we try to mix it up I mean I think you know people on social media Mm -hmm. don't necessarily like to see everything like perfect and shiny and everything so I think they appreciate more when they they see things under construction or they see the transformations or they you know, see like what you were referencing where people meeting on site and seeing the process. Yeah, because it's telling the story and not just here's a nice thing right? and have two seconds of your attention. I completely agree. Okay, guys, so definitely go out there, follow A&R Signature Collections on uh, Instagram, go and check out the website. Um, if anyone had any questions they and they come through us, can we put them in touch with you to answer anything like that? They can go through you. Yeah. I think that's fine. And yeah. then if there's any good ones, I'll just send them over to okay. you and we'll get you some responses <laughs> back. Uh, but thank you so much, George, again, for joining us. Um, I hope actually we may be able to see some of your projects uh, just before and when they're done, obviously, on LA Mansion Tours. Sure. Because I think that yeah. that is... Yeah, we have, some, we have one coming that's finishing up next month, so we'll have to give you a preview. In fact, we've actually started recently Hard Hat Tours. So oh, we okay. are now touring two weeks and more before they're done and going through with the developer and kind of them explaining what they're going to create so then I think we can tell the story of after it's created so if there's any projects you're working on that I think we would absolutely love to do that but um, thank you so much again George Um, it's been an absolute pleasure to actually just know you for the last couple of years but also to have you here and uh, yeah if anyone out there has any questions reach out to me I'll put them over to George and we'll get you some responses uh, and definitely go and check out some of these properties guys including that Bel Air Road one I think that is my favourite I'm trying to think actually you know, there's a couple of yours I've seen Woods Drive I liked a lot as well oh, nice. and actually my wife did a swimwear line shoot there she did which as well oh, okay yeah yeah and actually I should <laughs> post that when we do this I'll put a link in it on the bio guys so you can see the aesthetics of that property and the view and how amazing that was because I really loved it. But anyway, thank you so much, George. Thank you so much, guys, for tuning in and listening. As always, if you have any questions, let us know uh, and we will do our best to kind of get back to you and hope you guys have a great day wherever you are. Goodbye.